I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. This is a CBC Podcast. Is there a crisis of masculinity? I think there's really a lot of evidence that many men are suffering. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. The question for me is, are men suffering because women are succeeding? Or are they suffering because of what they have inherited as the ideology of masculinity that no longer works for them in the way that it did perhaps for their grandfathers? Almost anywhere you turn today, social media platforms, the halls of academe, the playground, men and boys are under scrutiny. So much social violence, like sexual assault, domestic violence, mass shootings, murder, like war is really committed by men. A number of people were hurt in a stabbing spree through downtown Calgary. Police say a man stabbed and assaulted at least four people, all in a matter of minutes, and they are not sure of the motive. A male individual pushed an elderly female to the ground and then fled the scene. Emergency services responded, but unfortunately the female was pronounced deceased at the scene as a result Breaking of the Breaking news at 11. A frightening attack inside an elevator. A man suddenly grabbing a woman, putting her in a chokehold. And so again, the question becomes like, what does the construction of masculinity have to do with this? He allegedly pistol whipped one of the victims and then crashed a stolen car at the end of a... The troubled state of masculinity appears to be nearly everywhere now. You see it in the titles of countless books, articles, and films. What's wrong with men? Boys adrift. Angry white men. Patriarchy blues. Many social scientists concur that men aren't doing well. They're dropping out of the workforce. Their addiction rates are climbing. And men are three times more likely to commit suicide than women. And so my writing over the years has explored what I call men's paradox of power. What I mean by that is that the very ways that we have constructed a world of men's power not only has given men certain advantages, but imparts a huge cost on men ourselves. Why? To explore that very question, Ideas contributor Mary O'Connell goes back, way back, to ancient Greece. There was a huge cultural anxiety about gender identity. You can see it throughout, for example, Greek comedy. Think how many Greek comedies involve the idea of either men dressing up as women, women taking power from men, or men and women fighting. You can see it in Greek tragedy. This is the first of a three-part documentary series called Man Up, The Masculinity Crisis. Since the birth of Hollywood, the ancient world has been a favorite setting for movies. 
Ulysses is just one of 600 sword and sandal Tinseltown films. Homer's epic chronicles Ulysses' battles in Troy, then agonizing return home to reunite with his wife, who'd long thought him dead. Along the way, there's always blood, guts, and glory. I warned you before. I never make a present of a man's life a second time. So, what can the ancient world teach us about masculinity? Oh, quite a bit, according to Mary Beard. She's a Cambridge University classicist and cultural critic. In this lecture series at the British Museum, Mary Beard says ancient masculinity remains deeply embedded in our modern-day narratives, symbols, and art. Consider the case of the snake-haired Medusa. This is the classic myth in which the dominance of the male is violently reasserted against the illegitimate power of the woman. Some interpretations say Medusa is punished for being raped, her hair transformed into a head of writhing snakes. If anyone dares look at her, they're turned to stone. Enter the Greek hero Perseus, son of Zeus. He decapitates Medusa as she sleeps, then triumphantly presents the trophy, her severed head, to the world. In this century, just a few years ago, Donald Trump supporters evoked this image of Perseus brandishing a decapitated female head. It is with Hillary Clinton that we see the Medusa theme at its starkest, and I think its very nastiest. Predictably, perhaps, there were plenty of images produced by Trump supporters in the presidential campaign showing her with snaky locks. But the most horribly memorable of them, because it wasn't just a head, it also included the heroic male victorious adversary and killer. The scene of Perseus Trump swaggering with his sword and brandishing the bloody, dripping, oozing head of Medusa Clinton was very much part of the everyday domestic American decorative world. You could buy it on T-shirts and vests, on coffee mugs, on laptop sleeves and on tote bags, sometimes with the logo Triumph, sometimes Trump. The ancient world is preoccupied by gender because patriarchy is never easy with itself. But the fact that you have constantly to be rehearsing the wickedness of women, the way women might get out of out of control, the way you have to disempower them, you have to put them down, you know, go away at the war and they'll have committing adultery before you've, you know, gone out the front door and they'll murder you in the bath when you get back. Um, in some ways that's about patriarchy's desperation to say that it's, that it's natural. The underlying point of principle was that it was the duty of men to save civilization from the rule of women. Mm. 
Throughout ancient Greece, the most obvious symbol of a hyper-masculine culture was the penis. Images of the penis were everywhere, at festivals, parades, religious ceremonies. Phallic statues stood guard outside houses and even graced gardens, protecting the dwellers inside. Simon Goldhill is the author of Love, Sex, and Tragedy, How the Ancient World Shapes Our Lives. It's part of the pervasive imagery of masculinity. What there was was a huge anxiety about not being a real man. And in a sense, masculinity for a Greek was a bit like air. It's all around you. You constantly need it. But you only really notice it when it's not quite right. If it's not enough of it, there's too much of it. And masculinity was central to the sense of self-definition. The gymnasium was one of the key signs of Greek culture. It was also a place to pick up boys. It was also a place for philosophical or political discussion. It was the place where men went to be men on their own. There were certainly no women in the gymnasium. And apart from the slaves who didn't count, It was all men like us, citizens. And the competition, how masculinity was put on trial, was in several ways, by the fact of your own body. The body, the naked body, was on display. And of course, you were surrounded by those beautiful white statues of perfect bodies, and you were constantly being judged against that. Secondly, you were on trial simply in the form of contests, in the form of games. It was a place in which men struggled for public status that makes the gym a real place for competition. There must have been um, a lot of male anxiety, I guess the way women feel today, with their bodies displayed publicly everywhere. And I'm thinking that creates a real anxiety about living up to to an ideal. That's exactly right for the Greeks. It was a male body that was constantly on display. We are told that Socrates would uh, wander up to people in the street and go, hey, you're looking a bit flabby. Um, But the reason why he could go up to people was because how you fought in war was uh, partly dependent on how strong and fit you were. Mm. And so in a way, your body was part of the public apparatus of the state. So if you're flabby, ergo, you're a bad citizen, perhaps? If you're flabby, you might be thought to be a bad citizen because your flabbiness was a sign that you didn't go to the gym, that you were, in some senses, a a danger for your other citizens in fighting because you all depended on each other in war. Mm -hmm. Now, if a man was seen as inferior to his fellow man, would he be considered womanlike? Well, Aristotle... In his, tra- in his way of trying to explain the whole world, he suggested that the best way to understand a woman is a sort of failed man. You know, if only a woman was stronger, fitter, harder, drier, then she could be like a man. But she can't because she's just a woman. So in that sense, a woman is a, is a badly made version of a man. There must have been an awful lot of cultural anxiety just beneath the surface of gender identity, I guess. There was a huge cultural anxiety below the surface, and actually on the surface, about gender identity. You can see it throughout, for example, Greek comedy. Think how many Greek comedies involve the idea of either men dressing up as women, women taking power from men, or men and women fighting. You can see it in Greek tragedy. And there's that idea always that there is a threat 
to the boundaries of masculinity. Some scholars have described ancient Athenian government as a philocracy, governing by patriarchal values. In her book, The Reign of the Phallus, Sexual Politics in Ancient Athens, Ava Kuehls writes about mandated manhood. She says the battles between men and Amazon women were one of ancient Athens' charter myths. Greek men needed to battle Amazons out of existence, even though Amazons didn't actually exist. Yes, yes, we can trace that very well, though we, that Greeks killing Amazons was by far the favorite motif of, of illustration. It was just massive. They were all over in, in the wall paintings of the uh, high classical age, age of Pericles, broadly speaking. All included Amazons and Greeks fighting, and usually, always did the Greek men win, but usually uh, the representation concentrated very much on the on the attack on on the genital aspects of the victim Amazon. One of the purposes of the, of this myth, uh, of all charter myths, is to glorify or legitimize an upstart power. So to the Greek male imagination, these Amazon women were considered a threat. What what we know is the the Amazons first make the entrance into the mythological world in in the myths surrounding the Trojan War. A tribe of women warriors, presumably they had exterminated their men or driven them out, who came to the aid of the Trojans on the, on the battlefields outside of the walls of Troy. Mm-hmm. And then the Greeks fought them and vanquished them. The Athens had nothing to do with these myths because Athens, in the context of the legendary Trojan War, was a very, very minor participant. Mm-hmm. But then when, when hundreds of years later, Athens became all-powerful within the Greek world. They wanted to connect themselves artificially with these legendary events of the past. So they invented a new myth whereby the the Amazons, after the Trojan War, invaded Attic soil, and the Greeks, Athenian Greeks, fought them there. So when you say these male heroes killed the Amazons, the warrior women... You say they pointed their weapons at their genitalia. Were these weapons, I guess, symbolic of the phallus? Uh, I, I think so. I take I take them that way. The myth of the Greeks killing Amazons was worked out in a great refinement to give it the flavor of the forces of male dominance actually defeated the female, but defeating her in her most feminine aspect, very often the breast. So this is is a uh, a subconscious process that this the message of these hundreds and hundreds of decorations it cannot be anything else. So look, we we have defeated the female as they certainly had. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Women uh, were told were locked in their houses. They didn't have names, and that reality compared to these myths where men are fighting furiously. Why were men so worried? Because the chances of women rebelling were probably rather small. Yes, it, it's, it's, it certainly was, but that doesn't mean the men were not afraid of it. And it was 
part and parcel, I think, I think, of this whole tendency to deny the very existence of women, to pretend that there was no such thing as a woman. In the ancient world, the male prerogative could include sex with wives, slaves, and children. But by the Middle Ages, competition amongst men took a different turn, battling sexual desires. This could take the form of abstinence, fasting, penance, and prayer. In fact, murder wasn't penalized as harshly as sex outside of procreation was. Jacqueline Murray writes about this period in Love, Family, and Marriage in the Middle Ages. Sometimes people would uh, lash themselves uh, with, uh, with twigs or uh, St. Anthony, for example, he would um, go out into the desert and jump into brambles and roll around in these brambles until he was all scratched and bleeding as a way of trying to rid himself of desires. And there was another one who would go out into the marshes and he sat there and let all the mosquitoes and bugs and things bite him until uh, we're told his body was all this sort of bleeding pulpy mass in order to try and control that flesh so they'd feel no desire. This was, I suppose, um, the Christian masculine ideal about being in control of one's heart, body, and mind? Well, it was believed that the body could, in fact, influence or reflect how the mind was. So that if you put yourself into situations where you were feeling luxurious, then it would, in fact, affect your mind and take you away from God. Just the same as if you had fantasies. St. Jerome in the desert talked about how he'd be starving and living in a cave and so on, and yet he'd still have these visions of dancing girls and luxuries and and great feasts, and it would take his mind away from God. There was a a real link between uh, body and mind, and as a result, you see in a lot of the rules for monks and so on, different attempts to try and... Uh, provide uh, guidelines that would limit the opportunities that people had for awakening their bodies. You wanted to be cold. Mm -hmm. And so if you ate spicy food or if you got uh, drunk, you might, in fact, encourage those humors that would make you feel more sexual desire and more eroticism. So you wanted to do, as a man, everything you could to cool down your humors and cool the fires of lust. Mm Now, how did the church feel about um, physical castration? Well, the church was absolutely against castration. It was against any form of bodily mutilation. So that um, the rules said that a man who castrated himself in order that uh, he would not be tempted to have sex and would be able to stay chaste was not permitted to enter the priesthood. It was okay if you had been captured in war and it happened to you against your will, but you couldn't go out and do it to yourself because that would be seen as cheating. As a shortcut. (laughs) Exactly right. And, oh, you know, this was the best thing that ever happened to me because now I can't sin. Because at that time, they believed that the removal of the testicles meant that uh, a man could not have an erection and could not... uh, 
uh, experience sexual pleasure. I mean, that's not actually factually true, mm -hmm. but they believe that. Interesting. And just on that notion of the church feeling the physical castration was a shortcut because it wasn't taming the flesh, but it was simply cutting it off. That's right. And so you didn't have to struggle with it. It, it really was taking the easy way out, uh, they believed. And it was quite, um, castration was quite a common act in, in the Middle Ages. I mean, it was a, a punishment for a number of different crimes, uh, the crime of rape. Mm -hmm. And uh, in particular, it was uh, a, cr a punishment for clergy who raped women. So there was some sort of logic there. Mm -hmm. Now, I know you touched on it um, somewhat briefly, but uh, now with the non-religious men, what ideal of masculinity prevailed? For uh, strong feudal lords, for the aristocracy, for fairly wealthy men, the idea of masculinity was absolutely uh, being virile, having lots of children, and uh, having male children was better than female children because if you were more masculine, you'd engender boys rather than girls. Um, your semen's good and strong, and so it's uh, engendering strong, uh, strong fetus, uh, and uh, a weaker, thinner kind of semen would engender a girl. But it wasn't just the size that mattered for the Middle Ages. An impotent man could not, for example, get married. If he knew, for example, that he was impotent in some way, uh, perhaps um, there was some um, malformation of the penis or the genitals. And a lot of times they believed that the impotence might be caused by magic and uh, usually by a woman who had been spurned by the man. And uh, it was quite important for uh, a man who had been accused of impotence to, to be able to prove that he was not impotent because he couldn't remarry at all. We have one uh, example mm -hmm. of a man who uh, had been accused of impotence, and there he was at a brothel having sex with a prostitute, and he yells across the room at the local parish priest to come here and put his hand on his penis and see, in fact, that it was big and erect and that he was, in fact, having sex with this prostitute. So you see, I am a real man. So the local priest was also in the brothel? Apparently so. <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> They're, you know, social gathering places. Right. <laughs> Masculine ideals would eventually be transformed by what's often called communal manhood, a cultural hand-me-down, a baton passed from medieval times to early white North America. From the late 1700s onwards, masculinity evolved in lockstep with the modern era. Communal manhood was marked by a vertical society. White men were born into a position on the social ladder. They were farmers, merchants, some were tenants. They often worked from the home or nearby, close to wives and children. Men were expected to fulfill their duties to family, church, and community. Social bonds were valued within neighborhoods, creating, in a sense, tightly knit town squares.
Yes, that is an earthquake that you hear behind me, and maybe that's understating how capitalism forever changed masculinity, replacing the communal man with what scholars describe as the self-made man. Men no longer viewed themselves as strands in a larger social web. This seismic change meant they didn't have to accept their rung on the ladder, they competed to climb it instead. Greed and self-interest were values to admire in a world where the ground had shifted. This became the natural way for men to be. To this day, we hear versions of this idea from cultural critics like Jordan Peterson, who states, Men are naturally businesslike, organized, and capitalistic. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also hear us on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. These days, we're hearing a lot of cultural anxiety around ideas of manhood. These were common phrases, you know, be a man, you know. Yeah, be a man, be a man. I wish that I could have responded to that declaration, that assertion with, what do you mean by be a man? What does a man mean to you? This is the first of a three-part series called Man Up, the Masculinity Crisis by Ideas contributor Mary O'Connell. The advent of capitalism gave birth to the self-made man. It signaled a new way for men to work and live in the world, upending families, women, and, of course, ideas of manhood. In Anthony Rotundo's book, American Manhood, there are excerpts from letters and diaries, words from ordinary men embracing something shiny and new. Capitalism. The self-made man was someone made for action amid the bustling scenes of moving life. It is so unmanly, so unnatural, to spend a life in the pursuit of nothing. You know, both of those quotes are really good illustrations of how young men bought into the system. And those views that they had learned shaped their their sense of what they wanted to be and needed to be as full-grown men. And um, Anthony, you write that how men express themselves to each other in their male-to-male relationships began to narrow with the emergence of the self-made man in the sense that you say up till the end of the 1800s, single straight men would hold hands, cuddle, sleep together. But the competitive self-made man wasn't having that. 
Yeah. Um, in fact, famous leaders in the U.S. from the early 1800s, white American men like uh, Abraham Lincoln and Daniel Webster used to write these really ardent letters, almost always in male single adulthood, that express their love and pledge their devotion. My best friend is the partner of my joys, griefs, and affections, the only participator of my most secret thoughts. What is this world worth without the enjoyment of male friendship and the cultivation of the social feelings of the heart? And part of what was going on, they were speaking in the language of the Romantic poets and a lot of the Greek and Roman scholars that they read avidly. So there was kind of an imitative thing going on. And also, young evangelists would write the same kinds of letters to their dearest friends, their, their bosom friends, um, to use a phrase they might have used that men probably wouldn't use anymore. And so Christian Brotherhood was pledged in the same kind of devoted language. And I think you're right that as the self-made man began working outside the home, of course, more and more, and primary parenting fell to the mothers for the first time, this also um, impacted ideas of masculinity. Yeah. Um, as as gender roles and family life changed in the, in the 19th century, um, men came to fear the feminine in themselves more than they did in earlier eras, you know, that whole thing of, in a sense, being raised just by women and the complications that created in a, in a society where they were supposed to grow up to be very unwomanly. That was one thing that, that began to push men away from romantic friendships. But another was that as society became more urban, there was a certain kind of person who became more visible. And this was a man who didn't just want to have an ardent relationship with his crush on his best friend. This was a man who wanted the love and sexual relationships with other men. And um, in fact, in the late 19th century, a term was invented for this kind of person, an identity, and that was homosexual. And heterosexual men were terrified of homosexuals and uh, not only invented this term for them, but they worked hard to ostracize them um, and made their behavior illegal. And romantic friendship just looked way too much like homosexuality. And so in the late 19th century, early into the 20th century, romantic friendship just disappeared. And one of my favorite examples, in fact, is from sports. If you look at a picture of an American college football team from the 1880s or 1890s, you see men kind of randomly arranged in a room and sort of draped on each other. Guys, you know, with their their arm on somebody else's shoulder, guys sitting on the floor leaning against the knee of one of their teammates. And then you look about 20 years later, 
and you get what we think of as the team photo of today, where men are neatly arranged in rows on bleachers, like ice cubes, ice cubes in an ice cube tray. <laughs> So, right, in a more competitive world, there was more rivalry amongst men. But then I think about today, you know, the word bromance. It's used to describe some male relationships. I know there's no equivalent, I think, for women. No. So does the idea of bromance reflect a new warmth between men? Oh, um, very, very much so. Um, And it comes in at a time when there's a little bit more of a cultural space for affection between men. And it's okay in certain settings for guys who know each other well to express their love to each other as long as it's, I love you, man, as opposed to, I love you. Man kind of makes, it's like the bro on beginning of bromance. It's not a romance. It's a manly form of friendship. It's not love. It's I love you, man. I need that word man there to prove that I'm not that I'm not gay. That I'm a real man. In Victorian times, grooming a real man began in boyhood. Clothing was one marker. Traditionally, young boys and girls had worn dresses, but masculinity scholars say that with men out of the house working, mothers becoming the primary parent, school teachers were female, and so were Sunday school instructors, the public perception developed that boys were weakening, even developing nervous disorders and tics. Common phrases emerged, don't be a girl boy, or you're a Tommy apron strings. Historian Joe Paletti has noted that dresses and smocks for boys began to disappear. So did the common color for boys, red or pink. Red was seen as strong, the color of blood. Girls were in blue, representing the sky, ethereal, pretty, pale, just like girls. Until parental notions began viewing blue as the color of power, the color boys would now wear. There were more signs of the time ahead, including the reaction against late Victorian architecture. Too many curls, swirls, and parlors. Architect Louis Sullivan declared the Baroque style too feminine. The solution? Something more masculine. Louis Sullivan invented the first skyscraper, Chicago's Monadnock Building. Going up... As efforts to masculinize society continued, some men seemed confused and troubled, says Michael Kimmel. A sociologist, he created the first masculinity studies center in North America. Kimmel has written many books on male identity, including the state of manhood at the turn of the 20th century. Living in the city, commuting every day, taking the train, you know, commuting to a boring dead-end job where I'm pushing paper from one side of a desk to another side of a desk. Where were the real men? I need to, you know, I know. The West. Cowboys. That's where I'm going to go. And so they invented the dude ranch. Yeah, yeah. 
The whole idea of the Dude Ranch was to get these city slickers back to the wild where they could recreate and re-experience their real manhood. The Dude Ranch was invented at the turn of the century for precisely that reason. The rodeo, right? You know, I'll give you a Canadian example. Why did they invent the Calgary Stampede when they invented the Calgary Stampede? Because basically Ottawa, Montreal, and Toronto masculinity was dominating in Canada. They said, let's go back to the rough and hardy ways, the roping and riding sort of thing, shooting. Well, that whole idea was a creation. It's a, a, a Wild West show that traveled around with uh, Buffalo Bill Cody. The, these were all efforts to, to, to retrieve. Yep, yep. Yeah. See, that's, that's the language that we use, and that language is there today, too. We have to restore reclaim, retrieve masculinity. It's somehow been lost and we have to get it back, right? Make masculinity great again. Some observers say that could have been the mantra for men's fraternities that sprung up in the late 19th century. You have heard the tolling of 11 strokes. This is to remind us that with Alps, the hour of eleven has a tender significance. Wherever Alps may roam, whatever their lot in life may be, when this hour falls upon the dial of night, the great heart of Elkdom swells and throbs. It is the golden hour of recollection, the homecoming of those who wander, the mystic roll call, of those who will come no more. A reverential tone emanated from social clubs like the Elks and Masons, clubs that stood for God, country, and capitalism. Get-togethers were often fueled by alcohol to enhance male bonding. Think pre-man cave, these urban retreats. But many clubs banned men of color. They were interested in strengthening manhood among their whites-only members. But they look to the character and practices of other cultures. They tended to look to men they saw as being primitives or savages for what they should be as men living in a civilized world, as they saw it. The interesting thing is that all of this was a, a projection of the imaginations of white men living in societies where they were dealing with abstractions and words and numbers. So they could project onto these so-called primitive people whatever they wanted to. And in some cases, they actually projected what they saw as positive qualities on on primitive men, that they were noble savages, that they were restrained and sexually chaste, but brave and forthright and principled and moral at the same time. You've written um, there was a strong desire to emulate colored men and Orientals, as they were called at the time, because they appeared more warm and relaxed about their manhood. 
Um, there was also some of that projection onto some Asians or Orientals, as white Americans tended to call them at the time. But, you know, probably the classic example of the noble savage is um, Chingachgook, the, the last of the Mohicans. My son, my fire is ashes. Your fire is bright. More common as a set of white elite projections of manhood onto um, so-called primitives was projection of them as brave and courageous, but totally irrational and undisciplined, violent, highly sexed, uncivilized, close to nature, but close to animal. A warrior goes to you swift, straight, and unseen like arrow shot into sun. So whether it was the positive or negative set of characteristics that white men were projecting, onto these people. What they were really doing was saying, look, I have all these characteristics buried deeply in me. And civilization has created an overlay of all these complicated systems. And what I really need to do is to remember how to dig back down into the primitive in myself when I need it. But they also wanted to beat that out of the primitives. Very much so. I mean, at the same time that men were in some ways idealizing primitive men and primitive societies, again, their definition, they were also launching an effort to colonize the world and civilize all these primitives. So it's a an odd, um, <laughs> an odd set of behaviors with ultimately tragic results, mm. um, particularly for the people that they tried to civilize, um, but also in some ironic ways, tragic for themselves. The idea of these fraternities caught fire, a private bonding space for men. Eventually, they became mainstream, even turning up on TV screens as part of Bedrock, where we watched Fred Flintstone join the Loyal Order of water buffaloes. Brother, brother, the secret water buffalo handshake. Now, <laughs> uh, the secret password, brother. Ah, <laughs> uh, that kind of gives you a certain feeling, doesn't it, Barney? Sure it does, Fred. In middle-class Canadian homes in the early 20th century, toy guns and real ones emerged as popular consumer items so boys could connect with their hunter roots. Sports franchises also flourished, especially American football, or as some called it, organized warfare. An epidemic of violence swept through the leagues. In the 1905 season, there were 19 deaths and 100 serious injuries. While some called for football to be abolished, President Theodore Roosevelt was so alarmed about the prospect of the sport being banned, he set aside his presidential duties, including meeting with the great powers of Europe, 
to hold a crisis conference at the White House to figure out how to change the rules to save football and manhood. Good morning, good morning, the best to you each morning. Sunshine breakfast, Kellogg's cornflakes, crisp and full of sun. The cultural conversation would yet again turn to boys and how poorly they were doing. In the early 20th century, the Boy Scouts announced, boys suffer from shaky nerves and doubtful vitality, and we can help. Then came the YMCA, and then came... Kellogg's Cornflakes. It promised to make men out of boys. Masculinity is in crisis. What's going on with men? They're getting weaker. They're getting flabbier. Maybe, maybe they, maybe it's what they're eating. So, a bunch of of health reformers, starting in a, in the eighteen forties, but l- moving on till the later part of the nineteenth century, designed various food products. Some doctors were prescribing that men need to eat rare steak, like twice a day at least. Blood creates blood. Eat more red meat. Then there were health reformers like Sylvester Graham, the inventor of the graham cracker. What's the graham cracker? The graham cracker is unprocessed flour, which he believed would go through your system more quickly and clean out your bowels. Because when that stuff doesn't get cleaned out, it would become toxic. And what, what would that lead to? That would lead young boys to masturbate. Masturbation was the terror of these health reformers because what was it doing? It was draining men's vital energy. The last thing you want to do after masturbating is go to work. That's me when I was a little shaver. They used to call me Shorty, except my dad. He used to call me Chief. Eat your cornflakes, Chief. If you want to be a fireman, you got to grow tall and strong. He was pretty big himself. So I ate my Kellogg's cornflakes. And you know, he didn't steer me wrong. And there's my little chief. I guess you know what we tell him. Um, J.H. Kellogg and C.W. Post both come up with the idea of, you know, using various cereals. But J.H. Kellogg went way beyond cereals. He created a sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan, and he had all of these remedies to basically pump up men. Right, so Kellogg wrote these books. I mean, if I tell you all of the things he prescribed to keep boys from masturbating, it was a kind of cultural hysteria. So he suggested things like a chair for boys, for adolescent boys, and the chair would have a little hole and underneath the hole would be a bucket of ice water. And so the genitals would go through the hole into the bucket of ice water, which would sort of literally chill you out. Like if you had these lascivious thoughts, they told boys that they had to sleep with their hands above the bed covers. They would actually handcuff the boys. Or he also suggested that if girls were masturbating, that girls, um, a a tincture of carbolic acid applied to the clitoris would certainly remedy that. And for boys, he actually advocated suturing the foreskin closed so that an erection couldn't happen. You know, basically, these were like parenting books. Now, so even in telling you this, I'm looking at your face and I'm realizing this is insane. (laughs) Um, 
Well, so so was he a respected person at the time? Was he seen as a nut? Kellogg's is the, I think, still the largest cereal producer in, in the world. So, yeah. <laughs> but I also don't want to be a historical and just go, that's just madness. And and we, we're so much brighter and smarter and and all of that today. You know what I, I mean? I do. And that's one of the reasons why I, I say that looking back gives us a kind of perspective like we've been here before. This is hysteria. If we've been here before, how have we dealt with it then? And that helps us, I think, now. Ideas about masculinizing society were pushed even further by conscripting Jesus Christ into the cultural conflict. What constituted manhood to many Protestant churches at the time was the idea that Jesus should embody a real man. Welcome to the era of what's become known as muscular Christianity. I mean, by the late 19th century, Jesus was this really sweet, nice guy who was saying, love your enemies and turn the other cheek. And he was so lovely. And, and, and long, he, flowing he, hair. Yeah, basically looked like a hippie. And, um, you know, so they were saying, no, Jesus was a scrapper. He was a fighter. He kicked the money changers out of the temple. He was a real man. And there was a whole debate about, you know, the masculinity of Jesus. When you're talking about the masculinity of Jesus... You're talking about a moment where everything is seen as kind of up for grabs and needs to be reasserted. Um, The core idea of muscular Christianity was that a Christian man should prove his physical hardiness um, while still remaining morally pure and good. And the origin lay in the fact that by the late 1800s, Elite white men, middle class men, were doing more and more what we would call desk work, what they called brain work. And they were feeling more and more alienated from their bodies. So what they were seeking out was a a more embodied form of manhood. And they ran into particular problems when they went to church every Sunday with their wives and kids. And they looked around them, and it was a what they saw as a feminized Christianity. It was all about love and tenderness and forgiveness and mercy. And Jesus was a sweet, blue-eyed guy with long hair and a beatific smile, walking around in sandals and a robe. And what muscular Christianity did was not only create this new idea about physical hardiness at the same time remaining morally good, but it also, for one thing, created a new Jesus, a Jesus who was the -the turn-of-the-century evangelist Billy Sunday used to talk about Jesus as a football player. Um, And in the 1920s, there was a, a huge bestseller 
that talked about Jesus as the creator of the greatest business organization in history. That 1925 best-selling book, The Man Nobody Knows, was written by American marketing executive Bruce Barton. In it, you'll find excerpts like this. Jesus was a pale young man with flabby forearms and a sad expression. A girlish look, a sissified Jesus. After all, we know that Jesus was the founder of modern business. In the 1920s, when the book about Jesus as a great business leader was written, the Christian church, if you combined the various Protestant sects with the Catholic church, it certainly, as of the 1920s, was the predominant global organization. And in terms of real Christian history, it's not clear that Jesus did any of the organizing. (laughs) But those folks weren't worried about creating an image of Jesus based on the reality of what happened 2,000 years ago anyway. (laughs) One of the goals of muscular Christianity was to make Jesus man up a physically fit spiritual warrior and businessman. There were other versions of curated masculinities in history, too. Muscular Judaism and muscular Buddhism share similar beliefs. Powerful representations of masculinity will lead society forward. On Ideas, you've been listening to part one of Man Up, the Masculinity Crisis, produced by Mary O'Connell. Thanks to our professors of ancient history who appeared in an earlier Ideas program, and thanks to Tom Howell for several readings. Lisa Ayuso is the web producer for Ideas. Technical production, Danielle Duval. The senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.